Well, thank you all for coming back this evening. No longer, no longer gripped by fear, right? Child of God. S Sally, my wife and I were at the uh, uh, NASA Space Center in Florida just a few weeks ago, and we were in one of the exhibits that showed the vastness of the universe and the new James Webb telescope that goes far beyond what the Hubble has been able to see. And in just a very small, minute part of the universe, they, they pointed the, the camera, the telescope, and they saw into it and were astounded by the vastness of the universe that was blind to us, even through Hubble. That there are trillions upon trillions, not just of stars and planets, but of galaxies. And to think, as the commentator shared, that they are more than the sands on the seas of the earth. That's how vast our system is. And yet, our God, who created all of them and know them by name, saw a little blue crystal in the midst of all of that, and on the surface of that, he saw you. And so valuable you are to him that he sent his only son to save you. Isn't that astounding? Why should we fear? And why should we fear the day in which we live? Well, tonight, prayer and revival, we're going to sort of take what we saw and heard this morning and apply it to some stories and to some testimonies of what God is doing in this present age. We said this morning, didn't we not, that prayer is our partnership with God in the transformation of history. We, God has sovereignly designed the unfolding of his purposes on earth to be a partnership between him, he who is holy and perfect and omnipotent, and his creation, you and me, bearing his image in creation. And he has sovereignly designed, even as he has sovereignly designed the universe, to say that his will will be accomplished on earth and in history so long as we partner with him in it. And one of our partnerships, so vital to the unfolding of his purposes, is prayer. The rule of the kingdom of God is to ask. Ask and it will be given you. But Father, you already know what I'm going to say before I say it. Open your mouth and speak it. That is how the kingdom works. At least part of the kingdom. At least part of the way it works. Well, tonight, I want to establish amongst us a culture of hope. We look at the news headlines today and we are tempted to, well, get pretty depressed. 
we look at the geopolitical situations in almost every quarter of the earth, and we wonder how in the world has this spun out of control so quickly? And where is it all going? We look at our college campuses, we look at our workplaces, we look at the demonstrations in the city streets, we look at the violence that is being not only enacted, but being, well, fanned into flame by propaganda, but also by TikTok and, and Twitter and all their social media. We see, too, the rapid decline in certain generations, especially Gen Z, of their allegiance to the church or Christianity at all. I think one poll I saw was that out of all, the, all of Gen Z, maybe about 4%, maybe about 4% would, uh, would consider them ev themselves evangelical believers. And out of that 4%, only a, a percentage of that would ascribe to the kinds of statements of faith that you and I would say are necessary for an evangelical faith. But I want you to know that we have faced such times before in history and that God has come in answer to the prayers of the saints and in, in in response to the faithfulness of his people to transform history. We call these seasons of revival and spiritual awakening, not just the kind of one week thing that we plan at a, at a local church or a two week affair, but where God sovereignly sweeps in on a people and changes them and changes the course of history as well. Let me take you back into the 1700s. 1790 to 1800 or so, and describe to you what was going on and see if there are any things here that sound familiar to you. We were just coming out as a nation, as a brand new nation, having recently ratified our founding documents and established ourselves as a fledgling independent land. We were we, we were so after eight years of war and exhausted by that war with England. But we had made our break, and that break was permanent. But we found ourselves surrounded by superpowers. We were not a superpower. We had France on our border. We had Spain on our border. We had the English to the north and to the Atlantic seas that ruled the seas. And the English no longer protecting our merchant ships going to and from Europe were now at the mercy of pirates on the open seas and we could no longer trade safely or confidently. Even if we sent our ships through the southern, southern ports in North Africa and up into southern Europe, they were being pirated off the, the coast of Africa by Islamic pirates who were taking our ships and holding our, our personnel captive as hostages, wanting ransom for those hostages from the United States government. In fact, in fact, we were spending up to 20% of our national budget buying those hostages back from North Africa. Sound familiar? We had threats of war. It could break out at any moment from the north or the south 
or again from enemies afar. There were pirates and terrorists that I was sharing, you, sharing with you about. Our ships were being taken. They were being pirated in the Mediterranean. And by the way, the first war that we ever had was an undeclared war by, by President Jefferson into the Barbary Coast to, to eliminate the pirates off of North Africa who wouldn't stop taking our people. We were near bankruptcy. We were close to forfeiting on our national debt. We had a real estate collapse that wiped out a large portion of, our, of the wealth of our population. There were plagues in our land, smallpox, yellow fever, taking tens of thousands of our citizens on an annual basis. There, were, there was famine in part of our land because of crop failures. There were national doubts as to whether we could in fact survive this period of time. The Enlightenment was another plague coming over from Europe, mainly from France, coming over from Europe, capturing our institutions of higher learning and also of federal power. The Enlightenment was a seductress, taking away our kids from historic Christianity. There was also the French reign of terror that terrified us. The French were killing each other, slaughtering by the thousands, by the tens of thousands, enemies of the state because of the new enlightenment in Paris. They were in fact, they in fact were taking religious leaders, Christian religious leaders and drowning them in the rivers on purpose in France. We're fearful that that reign of terror would come to the United States. There was social unrest. There were troops being sent out into certain population centers to quell anarchy and rebellion. Universalism was taking over, if the enlightenment wasn't taking away our kids, universalism was taking away a good swath of the others. That evangelical faith, orthodoxy, was succumbing to a universalism that was godless, really. There was political rancor. Political rancor. The, you think it was, it's tough today. Well, it was very tough back then. In fact, the nastiest presidential election in American history was between Adams and Jefferson. And the lies and the propaganda and the scoundrels that were involved in that election were almost beyond the pale. There was a coarse sensuality throughout the land. The churches were empty. And by the way, our, ki our kids going to the universities, if they did go to the universities, they were not coming out as believers. They were not coming out as strong Christians or leaders in the church. And at worst was the sin, the grievous sin of slavery. Well, the story could be long in, in, in unfurling tonight, but let me just share with you that there were groups around the country, some in, in the Carolinas, who were experiencing, also in Virginia, who were experiencing revivals during this time, 
and seeing God move in with great power and sweep through and changing and transforming whole populations. And as they were trained in their seminaries while seeing these revivals and living through them, they came out of the seminaries, some of them log cabin seminaries, heading out into the frontier, now opening up beyond the Appalachian Mountains into Ohio and Kentucky and the, and the like. And they were bringing the gospel then into this region, a region that was thoroughly unchurched, where those who were in that region, coming into that region, examining the land, found that it was not only churchless, but godless, and people could not even give you the most basic explanation of the Christian faith. Now, did any of you read this in your history books? Well, these preachers would come into the frontier and of particular note were those who came into Kentucky. And they began setting up and planting churches into this frontier. But what they did, what they did was, was because of a revival that had taken place in Campbellsring, Scotland, some 60 years before, they said the mess that we see, the vacuousness that we see with regard to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to address this like the Scots addressed it in Campbell's Lang 60 years before and bring united and concerted prayer wherever we could find it into these small churches. So they would go into these churches and bind them into covenants of united prayer that once a week they would pray uh, for revival and spiritual awakening in, excuse me, once a fortnight, every two weeks, they would get together in bands in their homes and pray that God would pour out a spirit of revival and spiritual awakening. And then once a quarter, they would gather with other churches of like mind in their area to pray for the same thing. And then once a year, they would gather for the Lord's table called the sacrament. Well, one of these sacraments, well, excuse me, there were a number of them that started building over the course of, of 1796, 1797, 1798. One of them was attended by a guy by the name of Barton Stone who took, his, took this vision of God moving and this remarkable work of heaven that was beginning to boil up in the frontier took it back to his church in a small church in a nothing place out in the middle of nowhere called Cane Ridge, Kentucky. And in 1801, he called for the Cane Ridge Sacrament. Let me just explain to you what this sacrament was like. The sacrament was a Scotch-Irish uh, paradigm. They would hold the sacrament, the Lord's table, once a year. And on a Friday night, you would come with your family from wherever you were living, and you would bring your, your wagon, and you would spend the weekend together. So Friday night, you would hear preaching of the word, you would start preparing your hearts for that which was coming throughout the weekend. On Saturday, your pastor would examine you in the company of your family 
and he would examine how you are catechizing your kids. He would test your kids and find out how you are, in fact, raising your family in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And if you could pass that test, you would get a token that will allow you to have communion on Sunday. But if you did not, you would go a year without communion and you'd have to start all over again. Well, obviously you would come to such a weekend with great concern over your own soul because everyone would know who who passed and who didn't by the table of the Lord. Well, with these patterns, these paradigms of prayer and the heartbeat and the rhythm of prayer, once a fortnight, once a quarter, over and over again, praying and praying. The first year, 1796 or so, things started to break loose a little bit. The next year, 97, it was getting pretty pretty awesome. The next year, in the third year, God was beginning to break out and sacraments started taking place all up and down uh, Kentucky until it came to Cane Ridge. Cane Ridge, maybe it had, maybe it had a, a thousand families in the entire county. When the sacramented Cane Ridge took place, 30,000 people showed up from all over the frontier. Because the reputation, the, the news of God stirring throughout the interior of Kentucky had spread into Ohio, had spread down the Ohio River, had spread all throughout Kentucky, and they came to be in the presence of God. And that place blew up with God. And for a week, nearly a week, they were together. It was only supposed to be three days. Can you imagine 30,000 people who had come with horses, who had come with children, there's no, there's no grocery stores nearby. There are no porta potties. There are no nothing to take care of such a crowd. And the only reason why they broke up, broke up is that the horses were running out of things to eat on the ground and people were, were running out of food stocks and they just had to go. And that was God's way of sending them everywhere in every direction with the news of the gospel of Christ aflame with the power of the Holy Spirit. And this revival went everywhere. And you can track the news stories and you can track the attendance numbers at churches throughout the frontier, into the west, into the east coast, up and down the east coast. And within years, within just a few years, the country was changed. How quickly, how marvelously, how wondrously God in answer to the prayers of his people, cooperating with him in the unfolding of the purposes of God in history, saw history flip to the glory of Christ. Now they took seriously in their praying what we talked about at least briefly this morning Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I say to you that if two of you 
on earth agree about anything you ask for, anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. That is a prayer that they staked their lives on when they went after God in what was called the concert of prayer. The word concert comes, is Old English for doing something in agreement. When you, do, when you do something in a concerted effort, you're doing it having agreed with other parties to do this jointly and to continue doing it until you finish the job. Now, when you go to a musical concert and you hear musicians play a concert, what you're seeing and hearing is the fruit of their agreements. They're agreeing on a number of things. They're agreeing on the music they're going to play. They're agreeing on when they're going to practice. They're agreeing on who's going to lead them, and they're agreeing on when the performances will happen. These musical concerts are musicians who have come together in agreement to produce wondrous sounds harmoniously. Now, have you ever heard a band that, is, that everyone is playing anything that they want to at any time that they want to? Yes, you have. It's called what? It's called the chaos, yes it is. But it's, it's the warm up, right? It's before the concert starts. They're all doing their own thing just to get warmed up. And then you hear the tap, 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 and everything stops and the agreements begin. So when you pray in agreement, you're praying in concert. The word here is symphoneo, well, from which we get the word symphony, right? But it doesn't have to do with music, it has to do with agreements. In fact, it was used in contract, in the context of contracts. So I want you, God says, to come together in agreement into one mind, and over and over again, the scriptures exhort us to be of one mind, and prior to Pentecost, we're told that the disciples and those gathered for 10 days prior to Pentecost were praying in one accord, homothumadon, with one mind. And out of that one mind, before the Lord, God answered by the outpouring of his spirit and the church was born. And when they were in the first blush of persecution by chapter four, they again prayed homothumadon in one accord and the place where they were meeting was what? Shaken. Wouldn't you just love to have been there? So what were the effects of the Cane Ridge agreements and prayer? And by the way, this is the first time in the history of the American church where black and white experienced the outpouring of God's spirit together and simultaneously to the surprise of everyone. And it was out of this that we'll see in a moment that an incongruity was written into the heart of every believer to say, 
if my brother experiences the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to the glory of Jesus Christ, just as I do, there is no reason on earth that I should own him. And that entire region of Kentucky, in fact, it was probably this revival that kept, that, kept Kentucky a neutral state in the Civil War. So what were the effects? Well, it spread out for nearly 50 years, this revival. Two or three major waves of this, nearly 50 years. It galvanized whole populations under the banner of Christ. Tens of thousands of churches were planted. Hundreds of denominations and associations were begun. Hundreds of colleges and universities were founded. Thousands of schools were established. Did you know that schools, public schools, were our, our idea, not the state's? Hospitals were built. Um, modern missions was, was launched. Missions as we know it today. The student volunteer movement and all the rest came out of this. The uh, societies, societies of all kinds, uh, Bible societies, tract societies, societies for orphans, societies for welfare, all kinds of societies. The abolition movement, we talked about. The effects of this, and I could go on, I really could go on. The effects are still with us today. Again, I just wanna remind us that prayer is our partnership with God in the transformation of history in the unfolding of his purposes on earth. And whether you like it or not, the rule of the kingdom is to ask. Open your mouth and ask for it. And oh, by the way, would you be willing to pray a prayer, even a prayer of agreement with another believer or another group of believers would you be willing to pray a prayer that you never would live to see the answer to? We talked about this morning and the modern missions movement and how the prayers have just bubbled up and blown up and, and we're on the verge of seeing 24 seven and 100 million believers around the earth where never, the sun will never set on the prayers of the saints ascending to God to finish the purposes that he has established for the earth in the Great Commission. Well, people have been praying for those nations for hundreds of years, and they never lived to see it. Abraham never lived to see his promise. Do you know the, 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 the hymn, Sweet Hour of Prayer, Sweet Hour of Prayer? And it talks about that sweet hour of prayer being Mount Nebo. Remember the, the verse? That from Nebo's heights, right? Well, what was on Nebo? That was Moses on Nebo, looking over, looking in the distance to a place he will never trod. Yet our prayers are like Nebo, Mount Nebo. We're looking at places that have never had the gospel and we will never see them one to Christ and yet we will pray for them until they receive Christ. How about for your grandchildren? or your children, 
Or like me, my great-grandfather praying over his daughter at the age of 12 for her husband, her children, her grandchildren. He would never live to see the answer to his prayers. That's part of our partnership too. Uh, A.B. Simpson, I wasn't gonna tell this story, but A.B. Simpson was a missionary and uh, one of the founders, or perhaps the founder of the, uh, the uh, Christian Missionary Alliance as a denomination. A.B. Simpson tells the story of a, a, of, a, of a time in the Burmese English War uh, around 1902 or so, where a great bell in one of the Buddhist temples, uh, one of the great, in fact, I think it's still the greatest Buddhist temple today, had a world famous bell in it, probably a prayer bell, that was lost in transport into the river right, right through uh, Rangoon, right, right there, dropped to the bottom. And they, all the engineers that they could come up with back then, they couldn't figure out a way to bring this huge bell from the bottom of the river. And so one of the other Buddhist temples came over and said, if, if we raise this bell, can we hang, that, hang it in our temple? And they confidently said, sure, you can, you can try, but that's not gonna happen. And so this, this other group started coming out with boats with little pieces of bamboo this big. And they started diving off the boats over and over again, down to the bell and connecting these little pieces of bamboo down at the bottom of the river to the bell and then they'd come back up. Thousands of times they went down with bamboo till suddenly the bell started moving on the bottom of the river. And hundreds of more dives and hundreds of more dives and sure enough that bell floated to the top of the river, they pulled it over and it's hanging in their temple today. And A.B. Simpson says, that's like our praying. That as we go down and take our little prayers with just little, little conceptions of what God is capable of doing. And yet we go down and we dive, even the heaviest, the weightiest things, even whole nations can give way to the prayers of the saints. Whole nations, this nation. Some of you who, maybe all of you, watched at least some of what was happening at Asbury University this, this winter, this past winter, February 28th, 2023. I told you this morning that, that our OneCry team had been on the campus of Asbury University about five months before the revival came and began working and mobilizing United Prayer as, as best we know how, finding people who would be interested in praying toward a revival. And we, we had been to several of their, of Asbury's chapels in Wilmer, Kentucky. And they were, they were good. But I was speaking frankly with the chaplain and said, we want, because, because the Asbury revival of 1970 was fundamental to the Jesus movement of the 1970s. 
In fact, even on the West Coast, they will tell you, and we have recorded uh, conversations that said whatever was happening out on the West Coast was just sort of a trickle of, of, of spiritual activity until representatives of the 1970 Asbury Revival showed up to tell them what God had done in, in Kentucky. And the thing blew up on the West Coast. And the rest was history, the Jesus Movement. Some of you saw the Jesus Revolution, the movie. That has a part in our story too. Well, I was talking with the chaplain. I said, we wanna celebrate this because we know that February 28th, where we're gonna do our collegiate day of prayer is the anniversary of the 1970 revival. And we couldn't be here during COVID to celebrate it correctly. So can we come back when it lands on the proper date and rather, rather than the proper year? And they, they said, sure, we, we can do that. But he confided in me saying, I, I just want you to, I just wanna be honest with you. I, I just can't imagine our students coming out for a Thursday night prayer meeting, even if it's televised. That was written on my heart because I have heard that many times over the course of the last 30 years. I don't think anybody is gonna be interested or not enough people will be interested. I haven't said that back to him since the revival, but I need to remind him because we can get a chuckle out of that. But 16 days before that day that we had planned for that broadcast, after months of people, small groups of people all throughout Wilmer, Francis Asbury Society and other groups, they started praying, they started praying, they started going after God. They're saying, this thing's coming, this thing's coming to, our, uh, to, to Asbury. We have to pray over it. Janine Brabon who had, had been with Asbury in 1970 as a sophomore, as a junior in 1970 when the revival came out. She's now a missionary down in Latin America. Janine, when she was a student, saw the condition, the spiritual condition on the campus of Asbury and said, I'm gonna start praying. I'm gonna start praying for the student. She started praying for every student by name over the course of three years and gathered other people to join her in that prayer. And they built it up and they built it up. Well, Janine got, got wind that we were coming, coming with this, this broadcast, this day of prayer for the colleges and universities of America. She started praying, she started texting, she started filling people up with the news that this was coming. Now, I don't know how much or how little our, our, the anticipation of our broadcast meant to this revival but I just know that activity started ramping up. And then 16 days before our broadcast, in a chapel by a guy, a modest guy, who after the chapel service was over, confessed that he, to his wife, called her on the phone and said, I don't think I did very well this morning. Students lingered, a few students lingered. And then more came back. And then more came back. Well. Listen to a, a clip, would you? I think the story will, will bless you. And 
afternoon I had to teach class at one o'clock and I remember commencing class and a couple of students were awfully distracted. You could tell that they didn't want to be there. At 1.30pm, halfway through class, four students barged into my classroom unannounced, a sweat running down their face, which I found out later was actually tears, and they declared very loudly, Prof Rob, you have to go to Hughes Auditorium now. Revival is breaking. It was a little bit too much to take in on first sight. One, because it seemed so ordinary and basic, but at the same time it seemed so pure. The worship that we experienced was not polished. It had no tech behind it. In fact, a lot of the worship leaders were identified uh, simply prophetically. They were just invited out of the prompting of the Spirit. We didn't really know their level of talent. But it was as pure as it could be. It was all back to like the origins and it was like, it was scripture and it was prayer. You just heard stories upon stories. People just didn't want to leave. We are so programmed and planned that we don't give any waiting to God. We're beholding Jesus and only Jesus. There was this, this theology of lingering that began to develop. They're the ones who were sensitive enough to say, something's different, we're gonna stay. It began to snowball, and then students that were still like clenching their teeth and holding on, didn't want to be there, but couldn't get away, eventually broke, and they began to share their stories. I mean, there was a spirit of forgiveness, a spirit of like turning towards one another. It was repentance, it was confession, it was at the altar desiring more of Jesus. I've never known repentance to feel so compelling, the kindness of God leading to repentance. And people were surprised, like think that they're coming to experience some sort of awesome revival and find themselves in repentance. It's just like it takes your breath away and like that's our God, the awe and the wonder. It was this irresistible invitation out of the hearts of these Gen Z leaders into actually what you were created for. Real given over life for God. That's what yeah. we want to see. So much of what has happened in Wilmore, Kentucky is not for Wilmore, Kentucky. It's not for Asbury. It's for the world. Now's the time for just a consecrated life, a life of contending, travailing, crying out, and really just radically trusting God. And so I encourage, I urge, I compel my sisters and brothers, church leaders, if there's one thing that you can do, get down on your knees and pray. Believe in the power of prayer. The Lord hears us. Outpourings do occur today. It could actually shift the landscape of the society, like it did for these tens of thousands of people walking into Hughes Auditorium, that it could be for, for each of our churches. So quickly, so suddenly, so thoroughly. How would you like to hear some of the sound of their worship? Here's a recording that we're about to hear from our international broadcast. 
at the end of 16 days of constant worship, constant praise, at the end of three hours of our broadcast, worshiping, worshiping, worshiping out to the night, and God just simply taking over, tailing off into the end of the evening. Dan, why don't you play some for us? singing Yeshua. things like that for hour upon hour. So enraptured were they of the presence of God. Bill Elf spoke on that that night and Bill Elf still hasn't recovered from that night. 
So moved was he by just this reality of God moving into that room and pressing in. What was the impact? What was the impact? 16 continuous days of worship and repentance and transformed lives, domestic and international press. I mean, Wilmer, Kentucky is just about nowhere. You ever been there? And the international press found it. So did the domestic press. Tucker Carlson wanted to come and they told him stay home. They didn't want celebrities there, no celebrities. The only celebrity was Jesus, they would say. The most, the most, the most, uh, most famous worship leader of our day said he would come and he would lead for free. He just wanted to be in the room and be in the presence of God. They told him to stay home. No celebrities. The only celebrity was Jesus. 50 to 100,000 visitors to Wilmar from most of the states and 25 different countries. When people heard about the presence of God at Wilmar, they sold their cars in certain places. They sold valuable possessions to find a, a plane ticket to fly to the United States to be in the presence of this group of people who had met God. And yet the crowds were so great there were emergencies in the town, or just about declared emergencies in the town, where the, where the mayor was, was threatening to close the entire town because no one could get through. The, the emergency vehicles couldn't get by. Nobody who lived in the place could get to their homes. But he was told, please don't. And so instead they put signs out on the highway. When the revival was full, they would put out big signs, revival is full. There's no place to park. There's no place to come. Keep driving. 50 to 100,000 visitors, students from almost 300 other campuses got in their cars when they heard and came. Hundreds of churches were represented there. Hundreds of churches were impacted by it. Tens of millions of Twitter shares over the revival. One of our team, Malachi O'Brien, is a Twitter influencer, or X now. 50 million shares of his account alone as he covered the revival. 50 million shares. But that isn't enough. One billion TikTok views. One billion TikTok views. Hundreds of pastors to taste the presence of God. They just came. They left what they were doing. Got, on a, got in their car, got on a plane, just came. They couldn't get in. They finally had to close. The place only seats 2,000 people. They closed it to everybody over 25. You couldn't get in. And it was 30 degree weather outside and people were standing out in the cold with projectors and they stood there the whole night worshiping God from the outside. Streets were packed. Churches mobilized from throughout Wilmer, all kinds of churches started streaming it into their auditorium so that the visitors could come and experience it. The final night, 10 broadcasting networks. This was not supposed to be a tele telecast. It was supposed to be a streaming event into the colleges and universities of America. But once it started breaking out, the press started, started coming and finding it out and reporting on it, both domestically and internationally, I just started calling friends in the television industry and say, I'm, I'm gonna, I've got cameras there, I'm gonna show this thing. 
Are you interested in broadcasting it? Yes, 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 send us a signal. Distribute, where can, you, where can we get the signal? 10 domestic broadcasting networks, as well as networks on the Chinese Pacific Rim, broadcasting into China, into Taiwan, into the Pacific Rim, up and down, 10 satellite networks across the Middle East, every Spanish-speaking uh, country in the world, in a little place like Wilmer, Kentucky. But a God who visited there for the glory of his, of his name and the glory of his son. That's not all though. I mean, we, we could go on and I won't. But I was on the phone this past week to a woman by the name of uh, Tanya Pruitt. Maybe some of you in this room know it. Maybe some of you know her husband. He's with the basketball uh, team on the, on the campus of Auburn, Auburn University. And for the last six, eight months, I, I can't remember what she said. She's been, she's been uh, dealing with students on the campus of Auburn with their depressions, with their anxieties, counseling with them, praying over them, praying with them. Suddenly, she, she just got, we, God's got to come to this place. And she started gathering students and others. She got a group of 200 people who started praying and prayer walking the campus of Auburn University. And finally, God gave her a vision of the basketball arena filled with students all to the glory of Christ. And she went to the, the basketball people and said, I had a, God gave me this vision, could it be? They said, let's do it. Six weeks, six weeks, they mobilized everything. Students filled the, the basketball arena at Auburn University. And they started asking after the end of this, the uh, service, where can we get baptized? We want to follow Jesus. And so they didn't know, they, they hadn't planned on this. And so they, they found a, a lake, a, a man-made pond about a half mile away. They all went out there, they took their cars, turned them around so that the headlights could face into the water and they started baptizing hundreds of kids. And Tanya says, don't stop there because we know of at least three campuses, maybe even four, that you'll see this in the next several weeks and next several months. They've already got it planned. They're, work, they're praying for it. They're praying toward it. They're praying into it. They're believing God for it. And these are major university campuses. Uh, people, this, this is gonna be a great day to be alive. And I'm, I'm asking you to pray with us too for these colleges. I was doing, as I was shared this morning, I was doing these international things. I was doing the, the Global Day of Prayer and all the, all the mobilization of cities and venues and so on across the earth. But I was starting to find such quality leaders all over the earth, believers who have not only enormous capacity spiritually, but now they're, they're maturing as churches and can, we can do this on our own, Bob. We don't need, need you. They didn't say that personally, I, I, but I can just feel it in their, in, their, uh, in their bones. So I started asking God, what, God, what do I do now with the balance of my days? And I came to the conviction, and I think Lord led, saying the greatest contribution I could make to the 
to the accomplishment, to the fulfillment of the Great Commission across the nations of the earth would be the revival of the American church. That would be the greatest contribution. I want to live to see that, don't you? But in a subcategory now that he has shown to me, Bob, the greatest need and the greatest potential for the accomplishment of my purpose throughout the nations of the earth is Gen Z. And I'm going after them. And so is one cry. And we're praying and we're seeing this now. The dominoes are starting to fall. May they, may they continue to fall. And next year, we're mobilizing. We've mobilized 130 pastors in Waco, Texas. They're praying on a monthly basis. In January, they begin 40 days of prayer and fasting leading up to the end of February, where we will have this, this in Waco Hall, seats 2,300, but, the, Waco, but the, the mall outside of Waco Hall can, can hold another 10, 20,000 people if we need to. But we're praying that God would visit that place in power and might, not for the sake of Baylor alone, but for the sake of, the, of Gen Z throughout the nation. I don't know, could I be so bold as to plead with Sherwood to put that on your prayer list? Could you do that, Ken? And say, we will stand with you, Bob. We'll stand with this great effort to mobilize and see God's spirit come. And if he comes and when he comes, he can flip history on a dime as we've seen tonight. Wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't you wanna live to see that? Wouldn't you be willing to pray to see that? Thank you. Let's stand and devote ourselves to be what this generation needs for the revival of the church. Father in heaven, I thank you for these, my friends here at Sherwood Baptist Church. This is one of the great churches in America. And I thank you for the friendships that I've been able to, to revisit these past couple of short days. So warm are they, so wonderful are they in their devotion to Jesus. So, so grand are their efforts in Albany itself. Grant to them vision after a dream upon dream as to how they can, they can transform this city into, I know there's no hills here, but a city on a hill that can't be hidden. And everyone would know that God lives here to the, to the glory of his son. And I pray, oh God, that they would persist. They would make the dive to the big, the big weight in the mud at the bottom of the river and they would dive and they would dive and they would dive with their little prayers accumulating their prayers but the accumulation of those prayers become huge and can lift anything, even Albany, even our land, our country. May it be so, oh God. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this day. As we are partners in the gospel with heaven. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.